car expert. You've done it again. <laughs> so good. I laughed until I cried. And right at the end, I'd be lying to you if I claimed that my trousers were completely dry. There was actual leakage. So well done with this excellent ute explainer for morons. It should be essential reading on the road to Dingo Piss Creek. Details next. I'm John Logan from AutoExpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap. <laughs> Expert. Dude, how far up your own digestive tract do you have to be to put that word in yo business name? I know not, obviously, but I can reveal you can smell breakfast when you get that far up there. Just saying. A website. Card. First up, a PSA of sorts for dudes like us. Now, a dude named Ross reached out to me unsolicited the other day. He represents a little-known Australian charity called CheckYourTackle.com. Link in the description. I've been checking mine several times a day for years now, only not on the bus, but, you know, even I learned something. It's aimed at dudes, dude, and it raises awareness of dude-specific cancer, which is an important and not frequently enough talked about issue. My advice to you, to paraphrase JFK, is ask not what you can do with your tackle, dude. Ask instead what you can do for checkyourtackle.com. The junk you save might be your own. They do these tackle-related but classy beer coasters and highly informative fold-out friggin' Z cards that raise awareness and scare you into a complete insomnia state for several nights. So that's kind of nice. Checkyourtackle.com. Go there. Donate if you can. It's a worthwhile cause. Hashtag not sponsored. And now, a brand new segment. It's still got new segment smell, which I will call um, seven things carexpert.com.au got wrong this time. Thank the Lord Elon Musk himself for a world with Car Expert in it and its recent uplifting ute jargon-busting piece for Complete Muppets by Vivek Shah. Well done, Vivek, and the team of fact-checking professionals who were all strangely on leave, apparently, at exactly the same time when you pressed go. Unlike most SUVs and their on-demand all-wheel drive systems, 4x4 systems in most utes make use of a locking centre differential. Minor problem there, car expert. It's just this, okay? That statement is completely fucking wrong. But aside from that, all good. Overwhelmingly, Four-wheel drive utes have a transfer case without any differential whatsoever, locking or not. No diff. If a transfer case had a differential, it would allow you to drive on a high-traction surface in four-wheel drive 
That's just how this works, okay? Now, for complete clarity, the transfer case is part of the powertrain, which is behind the transmission, and which transfers the drive front and rear, always to the rear, unless something goes horribly wrong, sometimes to the front in a 4x4U. Hence its name. And it also contains the low-range reduction gearing. Unless you're driving a Triton or an Amarok or some new Ranger, I think, there's no diff down there in the centre whatsoever inside the transfer case. Cross-axle diffs, like, yeah, sure, two of them free with every 4x4 ute. Centre diffs, however, not so much. The front and rear prop shafts are therefore synchronised when you select four-wheel drive in most utes and if you drive in four-wheel drive on a high-traction surface, it's going to be basically Dresden on the 14th of February 1945, but without the endless movie remake potential. So don't do that, dude. I'm looking at you, Hilux, Ranger, Navara, BT50, D-Max, and low-spec Triton. No center diff whatsoever, locking or not. It's just not down there. Given towing ability is one of the primary reasons to buy a ute, braked and unbraked capacities are a key differentiator between models in the segment. Okay, so unbraked tow capacity across the whole segment is 750 kilos, and that is a legislative thing. So, if them all being exactly the same in this respect is a, quote, key differentiator, okay. Braked tow capacity now, that's generally three and a half tonnes with 4x4 utes, with the exception of Triton on 3.1 tonnes and the Ranger Raptor at 2.5. So explain to me how every other 4x4 Ranger plus Hilux, Navara, BT50 and D-Max, all being 3.5 tonnes, is a, quote, key differentiator, them being, you know all the same. It's probably a bit fairer to say that maximum tow capacity is a specification that's extremely important to a significant number of dumb ute-buying wankers, which is why 3.5 tonnes has become so popular, despite how absurdly impractical and unsafe it actually is trying to tow that march with any popular mainstream 4x4 ute. Working out how to balance ride and handling in passenger cars is tough. For utes, manufacturers also have to balance these considerations with load carrying capacity and off-road ability. The load carrying capacity of the modern popular masturbators dual cab ute is a joke, frankly, and only a person who never actually considered that stuff could make the claim that load carrying was such a big deal in the off-road self-abuse ute segment, right? The Hilux Rogue, for example, has a payload capacity of just 819 kilos. Rugged X, being slightly more masturbatory, is 734. This isn't just the amount of firewood or building materials or whatever that you can carry, right? It's people and their gear as well, plus whatever friggin' ARB shit you bolt on, and the tow ball download also. A family of four, some very small, conservative amount of personal crap, a bit of junk in the tray, like a second spare tire and some limited recovery gear, 
hitched to a camper trailer with 250 kilos of download, you're basically on the cusp of being overloaded, right? A big old soft SUV like a Hyundai Santa Fe Highlander, for example, the diesel one, it has a payload capacity of 667 kilos, which frankly is within a metric B's dick of a Hilux Rugged X. It's also slightly more payload than a Land Cruiser 300 Sahara, counterintuitively, just saying. They're all highly similar, these big vehicles, in terms of their load-carrying abilities. This whole obsession with utes, especially the more popular dual cabs, right, with the high spec levels, as some sort of truck, some load-carrying beast, it is a complete fantasy that should not be perpetrated by motoring journalists, right? In fact, an up-spec 4x4 ute is not able to carry all that much more load than average seven-seat soft-duty SUVs. Leaf springs are a simpler, older design. Yeah, they're older, but they're not simpler to design, dude. They're just not. That's the springs themselves, right? Not the suspension setups. You said the springs. Leaf springs are in fact extremely complex to design. There's the material, the heat treatment, the span, the number of leaves, the cantilever of each leaf, which is very important for tuning the load deflection curve characteristics, and of course, lubrication, friction management, and curvature. Design of a leaf spring is just as complex as a coil spring. In many ways, it's even more complex. A modern leaf spring probably has 15 components all up, and a coil is just, well, it's a coil of round spring steel bar, dude. Coil springs, in contrast, may not offer the same load-carrying capabilities as a leaf spring setup, but have a more sophisticated design that allows for a greater breadth of movement and provide the manufacturer with greater scope to tune the ride for the particular requirements of the ute. Dude, four out of 10 at best. The reason leaf springs are present on most utes today at the rear is simply cost. It's not because coils can't carry the load, they can. This is not a locomotive or a B-double. There's not that much load. A coil spring on its own simply lacks the capacity to locate the rear axle in space. You need a multi-link suspension setup to locate the axle in space with coil springs. All the coils can do is carry the load, right? You need transverse and longitudinal location mechanisms for the axle in space. That is a minimum of three links in addition to the springs. So from a manufacturing perspective, that's three links, six brackets, six bolts, six bushes, more time and complexity on the production line, all in addition to just fitting the friggin' springs themselves. With a leaf spring set up, the springs both carry the load and they keep the axle in position down there. How hard is this? So it's much cheaper to design and build overall with a leaf spring setup. There are fewer parts, it takes less time. The Land Cruiser 300, right? It has a coil sprung rear, and we're not actually claiming, I hope, that it's not all that good at load carrying, are we? 
It's only 84 kilos different to a Hilux Rugged X in terms of the payload. Coil springs have superior ride quality for one very simple reason. Dude, it's because there's a fundamental issue with multi-leaf nests of springs. See, in a leaf spring, there's typically a nest of seven or something individual leaves, and they rub against each other when the spring deflects. So if the spring is static and you hit a bump, which happens all the friggin' time, the leaves have to start moving relative to each other. They have to rub over each other in six places over a frigging significant area. If you've got seven leaves in the nest, right? Six different junctions between those leaves. And it's a shearing sort of motion, right? So the static friction between the leaves has to be overcome for them to start their relative motion. Then they start moving relative to each other and the friction is more or less kinetic while they're moving. And static friction is substantially higher than kinetic friction. And it's the transition from one friction mode to the other and back, which upfucks yo ride quality with a leaf spring, causing yo heads to be shaken all over, as the Who would probably have sung, all the way to Dingo Piss Friggin' Creek, although I don't believe they ever actually played there, which is quite a shame, really. So, if you buy an old shitter ute or some other vehicle with leaf springs, do take the time to disassemble and re-grease those rear leaves on an otherwise perfectly serviceable Saturday afternoon in your driveway. Dude, you might be well pleased by how much the ride quality improves, provided, you know, you don't die in the attempt. A leaf spring consists of multiple strips of metal, usually steel or aluminium, that overlap and are sandwiched together and bound by metal clamps. Strips of metal. What is this, friggin' PlaySchool? Is PlaySchoolExpert.com.au already taken? Probably. Albors has them all, like of this, except the best one. There's a bear in there, etc. Could we at least try to use, you know, vaguely engineering language? Each leaf in the nest is a curved bar of spring steel, dude. Plus, show me the fucking aluminium leaf spring in a common vehicle anywhere. Aluminium is perhaps one of the shittest possible common metals for springs. Getting an aluminium leaf spring to function reliably for the life of the vehicle, well, dude, that's a real aerospace challenge, isn't it? Fatigue's going to be a thing, and so is mechanical wear because of all that relative rubbing against each other every time the spring deflects. Leaf springs are manufactured from individual bars of heat-treated spring steel. They are hardened and tempered after they are formed with the cantilever between the leaves allowing you to tune the rate, even achieve non-linearity if that is your desire. There's possibly even one or two leaves with unclamped ends in the nest right at the bottom, which engage with the rest of the nest only when the vehicle is heavily loaded, and this really helps to pump up the spring rate in those circumstances. These strips curve to form a parabolic shape, which can bend up and down in response to bumps or other creases on the road. Really? So, 
Kindly show me the parabolic leaf spring out there in an OE mainstream standard ute. Don't get me wrong, parabolic leaves are a thing. You can even buy them aftermarket for some vehicles. They're dead expensive to make, however, because each leaf has to be tapered and the cross-section gets smaller on the way out from the axle. And there are fewer leaves, so there's less interleaf friction. There's even typically composite plasticky pads between the leaves on parabolic springs to cut the friction even more. They're also lighter, so that reduces the unsprung mass, so you get better ride quality, but they're still okay at carrying loads. Therefore, parabolic leaf springs exist but the leaf springs on utes are not parabolic x-factory they're elliptical dude not whole ellipses obviously because that would be entirely unhelpful just part of an ellipse an arc by any other name which is why they're called three words count them semi-elliptical fucking leaf springs three words count them and finally those damn, quote, creases on the road. Are we driving on bed sheets now all of a sudden? Because I didn't get that calendar alert. They're bumps, dude. Big fuck-off bumps. All the way to the creek and back, if you survive. I have never seen a warning sign out there. Severe creases ahead, reduce speed kind of thing. And I've been everywhere, dude. In fact, and this will make Australia... Less shit, I guarantee it. When I am your prime mincer, I will erect a sign just outside every capital city in the outboard direction, and by law it will read, cock of a road ahead, next 4,000 kilometres. Because that pretty much sums it up, Australia. Anywho, thank you car expert for another quality piece of uplifting automotive satire. It's almost as if they published that one with their serious faces on. But I think, you know, deep down, we all know the truth. My pants are going to be quite okay, thanks for asking, but the dry cleaner, she's never going to look at me the same way again, I can tell. It was quite funny. There was leakage. Could have been age-related. Speaking of which, check your tackle.com, dude. Link in the description. Check it frequently. Just not on the bus.